welcome to another podcast from CHCA. We are super glad you're here. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, my name is Melissa, and we've got Pam with us. And today, we're going to actually interview Pam, who recently had a bout with an incredibly serious illness where uh, over the course of several days, I think she felt like she was going to die quite a few times. And I, I want to... Um, ask Pam, I want you to start and, and tell us why we're doing this, because I think it's really important. Uh, we're not just like, hey, let's talk about us. Uh, there's a kind of a specific reason. So Pam, why don't you tell us why we're going to talk about your illness? Right. So like, you know, I'm a private person. And if you ever wanted to know <clears throat> the dirt on me, well, today's your lucky day, right? We're going to talk about how unhealthy I am in a very transparent way. This is one case study. This is anecdotal. This is one data point. Um, so it's not medical advice. But the reason why I said, hey, let's let's get back to the podcast with talking about my illness is because so many of my friends in, in our community, our shared friends who are very knowledgeable, very holistic, were asking me the same questions. And, and they're pretty basic. We're not going to talk about anything high level today. Um, of how do we get well care when we're really sick? Most of us have never been this sick. I have never been this sick in my life. And, and my spouse would agree. My family would agree. My friends would agree. And so how do we get really good care at home? Um, what are our options? What, what can we do at home to avoid going to the hospital? And, um, you know, I don't know why we don't have this shared knowledge base among us because we're all so smart and informed of you know, the risks of vaccines and other pharmaceuticals, but I think maybe we've spent a lot of time playing um, defense against legislation of those infringements on our medical choices and our health choices that we have not spent a lot of time in conversation about what can we do to promote healing. And of course, we're not um, giving medical advice as medical professionals. We're just sharing like stories, community knowledge, giving people things to go look up yourself and see if I were in a scenario where I am sick and for an extended period of time, we're talking like three weeks, what are my options? And, and some of them are very simple and some of them you may have never have thought of. And some of them are just downright like logistical. How does your family survive? Like I found myself in a position where how do I I'm getting all these regular emails and calls and texts, and I don't even have the ability to tell people, yeah, that's not happening today or maybe for a couple of weeks. Like, I don't have like a office assistant that is responding like a secretary to like, hey, that's don't don't be waiting on that tomorrow. That's not happening. So some all of that, like all of those questions, how do you manage the sickness? How do you manage your family? How do you manage your responsibilities? you know, what are my options? All of the above. So that's why we're talking about it today uh, it, um, in some. Excellent. Okay. So why don't we just start with how did this start for you? What, like, did you have a, a cute onset or was it over the course of some days and, and what were the symptoms that you had? So um, it, I'm on day like 25 right now after the onset. So mine started on Labor Day, which was like September six or seven. So um, the Friday of Labor Day weekend, I had a small group of friends over, um, you know, which we can all joke, you know, super spreader of five people, 
in my home, all healthy. Um, but, and we were mostly outside. We had uh, a bonfire. And so five people stayed at my house. Two of those people ended up getting very sick, myself and one other person. And I just should say that this other person is very healthy, very strong, um, personal trainer, health coach, like probably the healthiest person I know. And she also got a very serious version of this. And we did not get sick until Monday. And for me, um, so bonfire Friday, people stayed the night, Friday night, went home, everything was great. Monday, I finished some tasks. I did some writing and sat down to dinner and I felt very lightheaded. And I was trying to play it off. Like I was not lightheaded. Like it, it was not, it was very sudden. And I don't know, we, maybe we all have this mechanism where we feel like we have to pretend we're okay and we're not. And so I um, tried to play it off. Like, oh, I'll just go lay on the couch for a while and, and figure out, you know, let, let this take its course and um, carry on. But no, it quickly within, within an hour, I had this fever. I felt my legs felt like I had run a marathon. Something was not right. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is some type of flu-like virus surprises me because I was not worn down, which is, you know, usually when I get sick and this is common for a lot of people, you get worn down, you get stressed out, you're doing too much, you're not taking care of yourself. And you kind of feel that slow degradation in your health. And you're like, yeah, I'm headed towards sickness, but not me, man. This was like full blown out of nowhere. And um, so, but still, I was still thinking in that first 24 hours, like, you know what? Oh, flu-like virus. It is almost October, you know, like, but it's kind of early for flu season. Flu season it correlates with a drop in temperatures and a drop of sunlight and UV and you know, well, this is September, it's not quite October, this is early for, especially our state in Colorado where we're getting summer-like weather still and a lot of sun. And I'm like, okay, but whatever, It's we'll let it run its course for, I'm one of those people who thinks, you know, fever is the body doing its job, I'll be fine. I've never had a fever that went more than a day and then maybe like a recovery day. I don't try to fight fever normally. And, I, you know, I'm gonna, whatever the body is trying to get rid of, I'm gonna let the body try to get rid of. So just in like plain terms. And I know, you know, that's common in our community too. People don't fear a fever. And so at the 24 hour mark, something is wrong. I still have a fever. And um, did you have night, night sweats and nausea? What other symptoms did you have? At first it was, it was just fever and this like fever that will, well, eventually we'll, we'll figure out, does not go away for like 10 days for me. Um, I did not have the sweating through the sheets or clothes like um, other people have reported. My friend my, my friend had that experience. Um, I did not have that, but I'm, not, I'm also not a big sweater. So part of this, you know, is knowing yourself, like I can sit in a sauna and I don't sweat that much. So sweating is good. Like I wouldn't be afraid of sweating. Sweating is, your, again, like a fever, your body is trying to excrete something and it has a finite way of doing that and it's through the skin it's through the gastrointestinal tract it's through the membranes in your respiratory tract so but I personally did not have that I also never at any point lost my um, smell or taste even to this day um so people are you know wondering like how do you think you got exposed if this is a virus um how do I get exposed so 
the only connection I had to a sick person is that the other friend who was sick, remember like only two out of the five ended up being sick. And the other three, they kind of think that they had had COVID before. They feel like they have immunity, which well, they could. I'm going to stop you right there because I was one of the other three. And actually, um, my son and I had a cold that weekend after we left. So, but it was nothing. You know, we just sniffled and sneezed for a few days. And that's good. It shows like the range of we don't really have a good way to predict who is who is going to get sick. So for those of you who are at home thinking, oh, she must be really unhealthy, you know, she's a closet, obese, elderly person, you know, um, who never goes outside and doesn't have a good vitamin D. No, I don't know. I, I don't think that applies to me. Um, I wasn't in those major at-risk groups. You know, I'm almost 50. So I'm one of the older people in the group, but the other friend, her son, the, <laughs> I'm not going to tell anyone else's age, but um, the other friend who did get the really severe sickness, her son had been sick the week prior to this get together. He had, he's 12. Everyone in his class, he's, he's gone back to school, has been recently vaccinated be, except for him. Um, and he got sick. And so whatever your theories are on that, a lot of sickness in that class. He was sick mildly for a couple days, no big deal. Um, not, and the friend had told me before she came that week, she said, hey, my son was sick this week. You know, are, you know, you feel, does everyone feel okay with that? It was like a two day thing and he's fine. And we were all like, totally. Um, so, you know, that is the only second person affiliation. I never spent time with her son. I never was near him, but the mom and myself, both got really sick, severely sick to, to the point of one of the friends in the group who saw both of us said, I've never seen people in my life this sick. And again, this is like the healthiest person I know in my near my age group. So that my connection is through the parent of a child who is sick in a 12 year old classroom, very mildly. And then it was a week later that we had symptoms. So, so before we start talking about what you did to help, um, let's just clarify that your family and the friends that were coming over to help take care of you during that time, nobody else got sick after that. Right, absolutely correct. So I have a teenager at home with me right now, one at college, I have a spouse, and um, I had two friends that were here daily um, and no one, none of them, none of their children, none of their family members, there was no other transmission or sickness amongst any of us. Fantastic. So let's talk about like maybe the first thing you did. So you've got this fever and you've got, um, I, I know at some point you had nausea, but like at what point did you start treating and what were you doing? So at the 24 hour mark, when this fever was not relenting and I suspected something unusual for me. So in the, so my history is about 15 years ago, I had true influenza. It was, it was hardcore fever for, you know, a day. I know what true influenza is as opposed to flu-like symptoms. It's, it's serious. It's you sit there and you say, oh, no, I know how people died on the prairie with this type of fever. And it's like sweating through your sheets type of fever. So I've had that experience. I knew what true influenza 
looked and felt like, and then I had also prior to that sometime and when I was in the military had like what they call the Korean crud, which is, is like a dysentery. And, um, and that is scary and serious. So I knew what serious um, illness was like. And so at the 24 hour mark, when this fear does not go away, I realized this is not like your typical, you know, flu-like illness. So I had ivermectin on hand and people are gonna ask, how'd you get ivermectin on hand? Uh, actually, I had a friend just bring it back from Mexico. You can walk into a, a pharmacy there and pay 10 bucks and get a bottle of ivermectin. It's no big deal. It's like an over-the-counter transaction. So I had some on hand, honestly, never thinking I would ever take it. And I told people publicly, um, I would have to be really bad off to take, you know, it's a pharmaceutical product and um, take ivermectin or HCQ even though they're safe, they have a long-term 60-year, you know, type track record and they're low risk and their people are benefiting. I said, for me personally, because my just trust is so high, I would have to be really, really bad off. So the 24-hour mark, I did decide to take a dose of ivermectin. And I wasn't even committed to like the full bottle or the full, you know, regimen. I was just like, let's just see what happens here. You know, let's nip this early on. Something's different here. And I got immediate relief from the fever like the fever had spiked immediate relief and I was like whew we nipped this like good old ivermectin helping me out like it has helped so many people and um for me it just it wasn't enough so I mean should I talk about some of the other things we did yeah so it wasn't enough and how long did it did the effects of the ivermectin last for you so what for me, again, this is anecdotal one data point, I felt like I got on this cycle of about every 24 hours, you know, people have different thoughts of take one, one ivermectin every other, every day or take two every other day. Um, I let my body tell me what to do. Like it would spike about every 24 hours, this fever would spike and I would take the ivermectin and it would, the ivermectin would push back the fever. It's the only thing when this fever would spike, because I was trying Motrin, a whole bunch of things, a lot of supplements, but it was the ivermectin about every 24 hours, one dose in the fever would, it didn't go away, but it would definitely come down. And so then we were, of course, doing all the other supplements. And when you look at some of like what, what, what supplements were you taking? Um, of course, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, um, maybe some, get my notes out here. Um, you know, those are the, the big ones when you're, you're talking, when you're looking at quercetin, um, B12, glutathione. Um, I think those are like, when you look at America's frontline doctors and they, those are medical doctors and they have protocols. Or if you look at um, FLCCC that promotes ivermectin, those critical care doctors, um, or even, um, well, we'll stick with those. Those are kind of the main two. The, the, what they have in common in both those protocols when you're fighting a, this virus are the vitamin C, vitamin D, Kirsten, uh, zinc. They, and then they kind of have different other things that they will throw in there depending on where you are in 
in the, the process, whether you're early on or whether you're severe, whether you're a long hauler, but those are like the core, like we're fighting a virus. And so I was, I was taking all of those and this would, this would go on ultimately the, all these symptoms of the fever at the migraine set in. So I, that's the best way I can describe it. So for me, I had this, um, migraine that was very, um, aligned with my spinal cord, my neck and my spine. And I mean, it was just, I've never had a migraine. What day did that start? Um, a few days in and, um, maybe like day, day three. And I mean, it was, I mean, to the point of, I'm asking friends about like, you know, what is, what are you, what are your experiences with meningitis? Like, why am I having this very centralized pain in my neck and, and in my back? And then the other friend who is sick at the same time, and we're comparing notes, she tells me, man, I feel like I got beat up by a baseball bat. I am feeling pain in every limb, like severe body aches and pain, like just like, and so hers was not limited to like the spinal neck area. And so I, I think that's interesting, you know, and I've, I've heard that from other people, like the, the body aches move in next and it's very severe to the point of Motrin did not help it. And when I have severe, when I, what I considered severe pain until this episode, because this just trumped everything, um, I occasionally take a Motrin, um, or, you know, and it, it did not help with the pain at all. I was not getting relieved. So I abandoned Motrin after a day or two and started taking cannabis, like a really high ratio, one-to-one cannabis oil. And, and I did get a little more relief from cannabis and I, and I, you know, I was persevering through this, but ultimately for pain, I got to day eight and, I, and I'm not a dramatic person or anything, but by day eight, I had this continual rotation of fever, pain, and nausea. I mean, it was, I mean, like a triple threat. And I mean, I've never, I mean, at this point, you know, you're exhausted. You're, you're, you can fight that for a couple of days, but by day eight, you're like demoralized. And I told my husband, um, I don't think I can make it through another night like this, like with all three of these things concurring, you know, just taking their swings at me by day eight, I told my spouse, I don't know if I can go another night like this. I'm like laying in the bathtub, like, cause I, I can't, I'm starting to like stumble to the bathroom that's right next to my room. And I'm, I feel like vertigo and I mean, just to get to the bathroom. So now I'm just laying in the bathroom and I told him like, I need, I actually, I think it was Randy who, who's one of the older, more wiser people in our friend group who suggested that, you know, why don't you try aspirin? Cause I don't normally take aspirin. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. You know, it's a blood thinner and this is a clotting issue for a lot of people. So, um, I told my husband, like, you got to go get some aspirin, right? <clears throat> Which is a very unusual request for me to send my husband for anything, but medical, but to ask him to go buy a pharmaceutical product. I'm like very specific. And, and we argued about this and he's like, look, why don't you just take some Tylenol, which I, you know, Tylenol lowers your glutathione. And 
I'm like, no, no, there's a difference. Like he's, he's not in the weeds of all this, like we are. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not like just a simple substitution. They're two different products. They do different things. And, and I finally just said, look, I don't think I want to live through another night. And so he went and got the aspirin and he found an aspirin with caffeine. And his thinking was, you know, maybe she's in caffeine withdrawal because, you know, we're on day like eight. And she has been drinking coffee. Starbucks too. <laughs> right. Like, but I am a coffee drinker. Like I'm, I'm being fully transparent. Like I'm a regular coffee drinker and caffeine withdrawal is real. And, you know, day eight, I haven't had coffee. And so aspirin was a breakthrough for us, like immediate relief from all three symptoms, like the headache, the nausea. I was like, I'm going to live. Like uh, we weren't out of the woods yet, but Aspen really was a really, I put it in my top three right there. You know, like if as much as ivermectin was beating back the fever, aspirin was beating back the pain, the migraine level of pain. Okay. So uh, Pam, I know that you took some Myers cocktails and why don't you go ahead and tell us what a Myers cocktail is? Cause I think um, some people won't know what that is. And, um, and then tell us when you got that and how that made you feel. So a Myers cocktail is an IV with um, various amounts of vitamin C, B12, B-complex, zinc, magnesium, glutathione, and you can add things in to kind of customize other things for pain and nausea, like Zofran for um, nausea and uh, Tordal for pain. I'm sure there's other things too. I know we, there was a discussion of NAD and some people respond to it and some people don't. Um, so there's other things. Um, and then you can kind of vary the amount, like the first, I think I took these on day four or five, some, sometime before the aspirin, um, somewhere around there, four, five, six, somewhere in there. Um, I don't exactly remember the days, but, um, the first one I did like a standard Supreme you know, Myers cocktail and they, in the nurse asked me, she's like, did I hear you say that you're, you have nausea? And I said, yeah, I have a lot of nausea. So she put in, she's like, I can put in, they ask you your consent. Do you want me to put in some Zofran? I said, put it in there. And, and then we talked about pain and she suggested Toradol because I told her the Motrin is not helping me at that point. I hadn't taken aspirin. And she said, we could put some Toradol in there. And she did. So there's some other things that they can, you know, they have the discretion to assess the scene and um, offer you other things and you just pay out of pocket. I think roughly these are like $500 each. And if that's like um, a lot in your mind, just know that in, in my experience, I had paid $7,000 for an IV at the ER. So I'm already thinking this is a better, safer, less expensive option I'm not in the ER under the control of, you know, doctors I don't know or trust. I'm still in control. I'm still spending less money. I'm, I'm probably not going to get a Myers cocktail in the ER. I don't know anyone who's ever been offered this. And I have requested this for people who have been in the, in the hospital for this. And people have requested things like that, vitamin C IVs and, and whatnot. And they've been told, no, we don't do that. So. Exactly. So this is not an option if you go to the hospital, right? I've never known anyone that they're like, oh yeah, let's give her some uh, vitamin C and an IV or glutathione. I've, I've just never, I don't know of any case studies of that. 
So, and then people ask me about, um, you know, do you, do they know you have COVID? Or are they okay if you have COVID? Um, they don't have a way to know. Like, so this, this business I think was, um, and they know that, right? So this business was created to help people with hangovers and people with, you know, athletes who are recovering from major athletic endeavors and various mild sicknesses, you know, they existed pre-COVID. So they operate within the law and they're, they're you know, they have their own regulations and credentials and laws that, that they, they follow all the laws. So the fact that they, they probably looked at me and said, yeah, she probably has COVID, you know, cause that's what they're treating. And these conversations we're having in their minds, they don't have the ability to PCR test me. And um, so you can answer as many of their questions and tell them as much or as little as you want. Basically the main questions are, um, what do you want? And you tell them and they say, and they make some suggestions. Would you, you know, do you want this or that? It looks like you're in pain, you have nausea. So I did tell them, and I, I just wanna be sure. I told them I, I cannot be vaccinated because I didn't know what was coming out of that bag. I'm like, I don't know, do they have um, vaccines in there? Who knows? I don't think they do. But, and, and they shared with me that they had both been vaccinated. They were both wearing masks. They, they made no special, demands on me to wear a mask in my home. Um, they check your pulse ox. Um, it needs to be 90 for them to um, treat you in your home. And uh, I was 90 on those two mornings and we'll talk about how I got to 90 maybe in our next question. But so maybe that's another, when we talk about equipment in your home, maybe having a pulse ox amongst you or all your friends shared among you is a good idea. I had a friend who brought they're over a pulse ox. They're, they're not expensive. Yeah. I mean, I think I looked at them online and it was like, oh, I could do that. It's no big deal, like 30 bucks or something. Yeah, because you know, if, I had, if they had showed up and I was not at 90, they were not going to be able to treat me. That's one of the, you know, the criteria that they're under to be a healthcare provider that is and I was 90 and we made sure that I was going to be at 90 when they showed up. <laughs> so should right, we talk about it? I underestimated the cost. Now there's some that are 30. Yeah, they're about 30. There's some that are 13. I don't know how accurate they would be, but they're, they're relatively inexpensive to have around the house. Well, and not everyone in your friend group necessarily needs one. Maybe you share one. You're like, Hey, I'm going to go grab the pull socks from somebody or all the equipment that we talk about today is I do not own any of these things and, and people are like yeah some really good friends I'm like you know what I do <laughs> because yeah. I didn't we, even ask we'll get, we'll get to that because I think you okay. kind of saved your life um okay so the Myers cocktails did they help um you did two of them you didn't do more than two what what was your reaction and I mean, I, I have to think they helped, you know, when you're putting all that good stuff in your body, they're helping you, right? And um, hydrating you and, and, and they're giving you the most direct form of, you know, vitamin C, um, you know, you don't have to digest it. It's going straight to the body. Um, so, but I did not feel better. Like I wasn't like, whew, I'm on the mend now. Like we did a second one because I was not on the mend. And in fact, and I'm gonna, again, I just wanna be transparent. The second one we doubled, we did the max dose of vitamin C. We went from the standard, which is like 5,000 IU to the max, which was 
10,000. You can do anything in between. It's just costs a little bit more. And we said, okay, let's do, let's, you know, because in theory, you should take vitamin C to bowel tolerance if you're sick. And um, so I'm, you know, he, even the medic that was, he was a paramedic firefighter um, that did this big dose one. He even said, yeah, I know cancer patients take 20,000 IUs. And he, he knew, you know, you're going to have bowel issues. And we were like, yeah, we know, we, you know, we're all in agreement here. You know, we're like, we know, like we're, we're informed. And, um, so I actually started to shake really badly, like trembling body shake. Like you would see someone with like severe chills. If you've ever seen like, um, almost like hypothermic in my lips turn blue and, um, it didn't last very long, but it was like, Whoa, maybe like that's my max dose right there. Like <clears throat> that, that's kind of a scary thing. Um, like I never felt like I was in danger, <clears throat> excuse me, but I definitely was like, okay, like, and I never lost bowel tolerance and people are like, what? Like I should have had, <laughs> I know. Right. And I'm like, look, I'm just telling you, like, maybe I was empty. I don't know. But like, I never had diarrhea this whole entire I also never had any respiratory um, symptoms. I never, I had an occasional cough. It was non-productive. I know you can hear in my voice that, you know, my voice is still affected on day 25. Um, but I never, this was not a respiratory virus for me. Um, and, uh, but maybe I should backtrack, but my pulse ox did go down to 87 and that surprises people, you know, like what is going on here? And that's why, we would bring in oxygen and the nebulizer. Okay. So I, I want to um, just mention something about the Myers cocktail before we go on to kind of, um, we're going to finish off your supplement protocol because I think a lot of people don't know what Myers cocktails are. And, and I actually had last year um, some Myers cocktails just because I was in incredibly run down after having moved and then being evacuated for forest fires. And I was just, you know, two or three times we were evacuated and in and out and in and out. It felt like I was moving every two weeks and um, very I, stressful. I was literally felt like I was dying. And the Myers cocktails, the first one I took, um, or just the regular baseline, whatever the office was that I went to, that it was their baseline. It helped me feel good for about a day. And then I went back a couple of days later, which they said they don't normally do, but they did. And I felt good for like three or four days. And then I got to the point where I was, I, we added stuff to them. Like we added the glutathione and we added the B12 and we added a mitochondrial cocktail. And so I did that from October through December. And I was doing it at the beginning. I was doing it every week for about a month. And then I was every other week. And then the last one I did, you know, was in December sometime, but I never felt like I needed to go back. So it was something that really helped me get through a time where I was really incredibly run down. Um, they are a great tool for a variety of different things. So let's talk about what you did next. So you did the Myers cocktails, you did the aspirin and, and caffeine, and you felt better for a little bit. And when I say better, that's kind of relative because you didn't actually feel that great. Um, what I have next on my list of what you did was flush niacin. So let's talk about that experience. Well, um, um, 
before we talk about niacin, because I feel like that was like the grand finale of this, I do want to mention the oxygen generator and um, the nebulizer. So people have a ton of questions about that if we're going like in chronological order. So um, friends came in and brought this equipment that they had or they borrowed and you can you can borrow this equipment from someone who uses it. And a lot of times people have like a backup because they've if they've had a chronic illness for years, they have an oxygen generator or nebulizer, but then they've replaced it, but they still have the old one. So, I mean, this is where you really benefit from having this friend group that has all these diverse ages and in health backgrounds, um, you know, that has access to these things. And I did not ask them to bring these things. And that's another, like, I just want to point to my mistakes that I made. Like this turned out to be really critical and I did not ask for help. Like I was just going to ride this thing out, not knowing this was going to go as long and as severely as it did. And, and, and that has worked in the past for me. You know, when I've had a couple of days of sickness, I ride it out. This is a different scenario. And so I, I should have asked for help. I should have said, look, like, let's, let's do some things here, but I didn't. And fortunately for me, I have these amazing friends that were like, you know what? let's just make sure this doesn't become a respiratory virus. And because a lot of people are suffering from not just the COVID, but the secondary respiratory problems and bacterial infection. So we brought in the nebulizer to um, ensure that I did not get a secondary bacterial infection in my lungs. And we brought in the oxygen to keep my pulse ox up to 90 so that I could have these in-home treatments with the IVs, not knowing how many I would you know, take in. So. Well, and, and to yeah. that point, I just want to um, say that I think it's incredibly important um, because these kinds of illnesses seem to be going around. And, and even if it's just a, an actual flu type illness, um, having a plan and not necessarily, you know, a, a solid, like I want to take this med, this med, and this med, because you don't really know how you're going to feel, but um, you know, I was part of the group of people that we were all texting and saying, okay, you are going to Pam's house today with, and you know, the Paul Sox and with the nebulizer. And, um, and we were, you know, just doing things without, you know, not without a permission, but we were just like, just doing things because they needed to be done. And it would be really beneficial to think to everybody to have that person or those people that will swoop in and take care of you um, I personally am a single mom. If I was sick like that, I, I would have to have people taking care of me. And so, you know, we've come up with a plan for if that happens so that both I and my son get taken care of while I'm down. And I would definitely recommend, you know, tagging one or two people that are willing to and know how to do what you need to do. Right. And your animals too. It's, it's who's taking care of your your, you, your child and your animals, and you're not going to be in a position to be like directing this if you're right. sick, right? You're, you're going to need friends that are going to like, they are going to take over for you. And um, so in the nebulizer, we, people have asked, you know, what do you put in the nebulizer? We put in um, a diluted uh, food grade hydrogen peroxide. And it's something you can get at Metro Grocer um, and in saline. 
And uh, people have asked about, can I, we had a hospital grade nebulizer, but can I use some a nebulizer I can buy at the store or online? Yeah, you can. I think they will all do the job. Now, uh, because there's been so much discussion about the nebulizer, I think some of the things to consider are if it's, you're going to use it on a child, you want one of these cooler ones that have the cool function. You don't want a hot steamy um, on a child's face. They're not going to tolerate it as well. Um, some of them are portable where you, they're like battery operated and you hold them in your hand and some of them are plug-in and some people find that those portable ones don't work as well. Um, they don't generate as much flow or have as much consistency than the plug-in ones. And then there's some that have like a mask feature where you, instead of just holding it, which is what I did, I just held it. You can actually like put it in your mouth, but I just held it by my, my mouth and nose. They actually have mask options where everyone in your family can have their own mask if you want to buy them, like an accessory, they're plastic and they're disposable and they're cleanable, you know, like, you know, you have different options. I think the mask has some benefit because a couple of times I fell asleep while I was holding this nebulizer near my face. And like, I woke up and I was like, oh yeah, I'm not nebulizing, you know, cause you're in and out. And so maybe if I had just strapped it to my face I, with a mask, I would have, um, you know, not had this like, oh, I got to stay awake right now, you know, for this 15 minutes or whatever. And um, so really we're just, and people nebulize different things. So, you know, I'm just giving you one example of food grade, hydrogen peroxide, heavily diluted. Um, yeah. But people have been using it for what, many other things. Yeah, when we left your house and got sick um, with just the colds, I was nebulizing straight up colloidal silver for myself. And my son wasn't very sick at all. I didn't even do it with him, but I felt almost immediate relief um, for, a lo for long periods of time. And so I was doing it several times a day and it was helping with my congestion and my stuffiness for sure. So talk to those people who, um, your friends who have kids with, um, kids with asthma and allergies tend to be users of these. If you really want like an expert opinion on nebulizers and how they're used in different ways and in different, um, types and brands of nebulizers. I am not a nebulizer expert, but, um, I did not get a secondary bacterial infection. So, um, I'm, I'm going to advocate for having access to a nebulizer in your friend group or in your home or whatever you can manage. And then the oxygen, oxygen generator people have asked about that. It's just generating oxygen and it's connected to a nasal cannula. Again, that's, you could borrow someone's, these are, these are pretty expensive machines. You know, like, I think they're like $5,000 for these mini portable ones. And um, so you can buy the plastic tubing from a med supply store and, or online, hook it up to your nose. It's just going to give you supplemental oxygen. It is not going to, it's not like a ventilator where you're getting pressure or, or anything. It's, you know, you tend to see these in um, versions of this with older people who have to have oxygen all the time for various conditions. So, but um, the average person is not going to own an oxygen generator. Um, so you, again, I mean, put that on your friend wish list, somebody who has an oxygen generator <laughs> or someone who has access or, you know, someone who can borrow from their, their mom who maybe has a backup one that nobody's using. Um, and it's not essential. Like we, again, and you can get your, if your pulse ox is at 87, like mine dipped down to, like I could probably take a few deep breaths and get myself up to 90. But, you know, we were, we were pretty dedicated to me not going to the hospital. So we weren't willing to take 
any chances of me not getting that pulse ox up to 90 went so I could get these IVs in my home. So did we cover all the equipment stuff? I think we did. Um, are you ready to do the grand finale? Yes. So sorry, this is so long, but people have had all these, I wrote down all the questions people have been asking me. So niacin. So, and again, I'm not a dramatic person, but I want to be transparent with people. So on night nine, right? I have tried all these big guns. I have tried hospital grade equipment. I have tried two Myers cocktails at maximum dose on the second one. Um, by night nine, I am not winning. I still have fever. I still have this migraine level pain that I'm trying to be back with the aspirin. And the nausea now is like, um, nausea is really coming in for the final like blow, right? Just to can whatever motivation you have left, you are demoralized. <laughs> For me, I was demoralized by night nine. And um, I understood, we have done a previous podcast on nice and flushing. I have not, I have flushed um, successfully when I was well um, with melatonin because it helps distribute it throughout the body and mitigates the flush. Um, but for me there, I had the mental understanding of niacin could benefit me greatly and how it works and how um, likely it is the only thing that could provide the equal amount of anti-inflammatory um, reaction that would be needed to put out this fever, right? Nothing else had worked and niacin it was, had hope and, but in my body, so you have this mental, like I understand that niacin can benefit me greatly right now, but you also have your body that has been through 10 days of, can I withstand a flush right now? Can I do this? Can I, can I tolerate this? I'm going to ask a lot of, it can be intense and it can be all over tingling, hot, cold, hot, cold, nausea. I mean, they can be intense and they can be mild. So it's hard to jump in. It is. And, you know, I'm going to ask my body to do a lot and, and I'm already depleted and exhausted. And so I had to choose between, look, I don't think my body can tolerate this right now, but on the other hand, mentally, like there is nothing else that I know of that could stop this progression. Right. So I just made a mental decision and I know that would be a hard thing to ask somebody in that position to say, hey, let me explain nice and flushing to you. And it's uncomfortable when you're well, and it's going to be really bad probably because you're so unwell, you're not strong, you're not healthy, and you're, you're battling nausea. It's a really bitter taste. Um, so I made a mental decision because I really thought like, this is it. Like, I'm not going to go another night like this. Like, and I um, rifled through my, you know, my supplement cabinet. That's another thing I just want to don't, I don't want to forget on a tangent here is that the friends coming to my house, went through my cabinets, got all the supplements I needed and put them in like morning, noon and night. Cause you're not going to be, if you're really, really sick, you're not going to be able to do that for yourself. Right. There was a lot of supplements and maybe like a dozen, and you're not going to rifle through your supplements and 
and put them out and you just need them like in a pile. And this was one friend's idea, just go over there and put them in piles for her. Well, the first idea was to put them in a pillbox and then we all <laughs> laughed because somebody was suggesting about 20 different pills and we're like, good luck finding a pillbox that big. Yeah. We actually did. And then people will come over and be like, hey, how, what's your nausea scale? And like, and I'm like, well, right now it's manageable. And they're like, okay, we're going to take 20 pills right now, you know, like supplements. I'm like, yep, we got to do it now because once that nausea comes back, we, we can't do it. This is like our window. And so same thing. So when I got to the uh, niacin, like I'm rifling through my cabinets for the melatonin and the niacin. And I'm like very weakly trying to crush them up in like a little, you know, like a mortar and pestle type situation because you need to like put them in a shot glass of water and you need it crushed, you know, crushable form and you take them together. And um, I took a thousand milligrams, which is my normal flush was, is like 500 milligrams and everyone's different. So I was like, you know what, 500 might not be enough. And um, in this scenario for the severity, and I don't know if I'm going to get a second chance. So like right now I have the will and the ability, this is a two 30 in the morning. Like I'm by myself. I have the will and the ability to do it now. There's like a 30 minute reprieve in, in the nausea. I'm like, this is my window, right? If I'm going to do it, it's right now. I'm going to commit. And I, and I took it and I, and I instantly regretted it. Like I shot it down. It was so bitter. And I was like, this is, I made, I made a bad decision. Um, but I knew it couldn't hurt me. I just knew it was going to be a rough ride from there on out. Like, cause the nausea was so bad and this is so bitter. And I knew what my body was going to do. And so I flushed for like, two hours and on top of everything else. And so then you were awake for the next two hours. I was kind of in and out. Um, and then there was like one really bad hour that I will just refer to on like the hour three where it, it was like a nightmare scene um, that um, it was scary for my spouse to witness. Like, I just want to be real. Like, um, and without getting too and without getting too graphic, this you were just in the bathroom having a terrible time. Well, the worst my spouse has ever seen me. Like I woke up after about two hours of flushing, kind of not really sleeping, not really awake, and I knew horrible things were about to happen. And <laughs> <laughs> I went in the bathroom right next to my room and and I told him, I warned him. Um, you know, because some spouses can handle this kind of stuff in to various degrees and some spouses are like I, I can't handle like vomiting or messes or I just said look something horrible is about to happen here and I don't know even where it's going to come from like or both you know like top bottom like both at the same time like it's going to be really ugly like and that you know it's not some people can't handle that kind of stuff and um as a mom I guess you just learn like you yeah. just learn. Um, and so there was an hour of just agony, like uh, unprecedented agony. And I finally threw up and, and it was just bile, you know, I didn't have anything in me. I'd say you hadn't really been eating for days. So I, I, we've been hydrating. That's another thing you want to have like some broth on hand and, um, some electrolytes. Uh, there was this orange flavored, um, electrolyte mix that I, actually could tolerate because I don't think you're going to be able to tolerate some flavors. Um, kind of tastes like vitamin C and then coconut water was a lifesaver. 
um, and friends brought all this to me. I didn't have this ready. I wasn't ready for like a 10 day sickness marathon. And I drank cold broth, which we all think is funny now. Like that stuff was so awesome to me. And there's this, this theory that your body will take what you need. Like if I don't think in normal circumstances, I could just sit there and like drink cold broth, like out of the fridge with like the fat floating on top. I was taking that stuff down like so easily. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Those little fat clumps tasted like ice cubes to me. I was like, give me another fat clump, man. That's like great. <laughs> like, and I tell people that and it's like repulsive, right? Like body needed it. And um, coconut water was going down great. And like, there was a point where the friends were like, like no more water for you. you you're going to dehydrate. And I do have uh, measures in my labs where I was almost to de dehydration. Like you have to drink something with electrolytes in it. Coconut mm. water was great. And this little orange um, electrolyte mix, I was able to get down sometimes, not always. Um, so I'm in the bathroom. It's a nightmare scene. I'm, I vomit up this bile. I mean, it took a lot for the, the, the reason why I say it's a nightmare scene, it took a lot for the body to be able to do this at this point. And my husband said, look, you were like moaning, like a dying animal. Like, let's, I'll just leave it like that. And I was like, I was like this, this is it. And I instantly, all the symptoms left when I threw up the migraine, the, the nausea, the fever, and I knew it. I was like, oh my gosh. Like I knew it wasn't temporary. I knew it was like gone, like all the symptoms, like as soon as I threw up. So, you know, it, it, everyone's gonna have their different take on this, but like, will I be able to pinpoint what helped me the most? Like I'd had two doses of glutathione in IV. So glutathione, you know, was doing its part to bind toxin or virus, whatever your take on this is. And, but I, it was the niacin that made everything come together and push it out of my body. So it, I think becoming familiar with what the niacin flush protocol is with Dr. Katz, we've done a different um, podcast with him, but, um, and he also has his own communication channels on Telegram and a website and um, because it's a little bit different for everybody, you can have major like blood pressure lowering when you nice and flush, like it's a little bit to know. And, and a lot of people who can understand it then don't even know how to implement it. Like it has to be a certain form of nicotinic acid, best with melatonin for delivery mechanism together or right before it needs to be crushed. So um, you get that or quick release. The capsule, if you have a capsule. Yeah, if you have a powder form of it, you cannot just swallow a tablet or capsule of niacin and flush. It has to be the right form, nicotinic acid, and it has to be in in the right um, delivery mechanism. So there's a little bit to know both on why would I do this, when would I do this, how does this benefit me? Yeah. There's books on it, and like how do I actually implement it? Yeah, and we'll put a link to um, Dr. Katz's interview, which was really good. And he does go over like where to start. And I think it's super important because it, it does feel like this niacin is helping with that. We've had a, a friend and, and I personally have an, another friend who had a fever and she flushed niacin and then woke up and she felt perfectly fine. Yes. And so it seems to be something that's working very well again not medical advice 
But to your point, when you're talking about, oh, do I want to put my body through this? The first time you flush, it's usually pretty incredible and um, a little overwhelming. And so to do that while you're sick is not a great idea. I would start getting into it, have the supplies, know what you need to do, experience it a few times. Even if you're not going to do a long-term flushing protocol, know what it is and know what it feels like. That's a really good suggestion because oftentimes, even when people get familiar with the protocol and what it is and what it does, I mean, like I frequently hear from people, oh, I had an allergic reaction to it. No, that's the flush. <laughs> Your body is going to turn red. You're going to feel itchy. Your blood pressure might lower. You're not going to feel great that first couple of times until you figure out your dose because everyone's, I know someone who flushes off of 25 milligrams and like, I know someone who flushes off of 250 milligrams. For me, it's the 500 milligrams. And in this scenario, it was a thousand. And so some people with more chronic conditions build up to 3000 milligrams a day. And people have had dramatic recoveries from a very long list of conditions that I won't rehash on this podcast, but is, is in our previous podcast. And um, so, and it's be, being a, a beneficial tool um, right now with what we're dealing and um, it, I think that is an excellent suggestion to, for, like you said, get familiar with what this does and how to use it before you get sick. And then you can better gauge like, so, you know, I've been criticized, um, one, uh, that I took pharmaceuticals and aspirin and ivermectin, and I've been criticized that I didn't flush earlier. Well, you know, when you're sick, you don't think, you know what? let's, let's do a flush right now. <laughs> and then it, it started to, you know, wear on me. And I kept waiting for this like reprieve where the symptoms would subside. And I was, of course, yeah, I'm going to flush this out as soon as I feel better. Well, 10 days, you know, nine days in, it was not getting better. So, and I had no prior experience in my life to like, to be able to expect that the way it went. And so, um, yeah, should I have taken it earlier on when, I thought it was just going to be like one day in the park fever, you know? Yeah, I should have. I really should have. So let's talk about this whole you vomit and then you feel better. It's kind of like food poisoning or a hangover where you've got these toxins in your body, you vomit, you know you need to vomit, and then you suddenly feel better, which begs the question, like, it, was this illness a, a normal virus? Was it some kind of toxic exposure? Like what, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I know we've had lots of discussions about this and, and lots of people have been asking that question. You know, this was not anything I'd experienced in my lifetime. I'm almost 50 and I mean, like I wasn't near a sick person, right? That's how you normally transmit a virus direct. Like I spent time living or working with this sick person. I didn't even have direct contact with the person. If you want to call them like patient zero in this scenario, if it was a 12 year old kid, um, his mom did, the, the kid got better. The mom didn't have any symptoms. And all of a sudden the mom and, the, and a friend are sick. The friend never spent any time with the sick kid. So the transmission and the onset are, are very peculiar to me. Well, and it also, when people say, oh, I got COVID from, I'm just like, come on, you have no idea. 
you have no idea. It's just in before 2020, if you said you got sick, I mean, unless like your spouse was sick and coughing all over you, I mean, it could have been a doorknob, it could have been the cart at the grocery store, it could have been you know, any number of things, and you have no idea. And so, you know, we all got together. Well, we all went to the grocery store before we came to your house and got food. And therefore, that could have been the transmission point, too. I mean, you just never know. You don't know. And I had been to church on Sunday before the Monday that I was sick. And I don't think anyone was sick there, but, you know, I was around a lot of people. You know, I didn't really, I don't think I touched anyone or, you know, had any significant contact with anyone, but um, the only person I can think of who had been sick in my entire circle recently was a 12 year old boy um, that I never actually came into contact with just his mom. So who knows? Like, so the, but the, the onset is very peculiar as well, because normally when I get sick, which is not very often um, that um, I get run down and I get like a sore throat or a cough for a day or two, um, and I know I can feel it coming on because I start taking all my things, you know, like I'm a big proponent of echinacea and fire cider this time of year. Like that stuff has saved me from like, oh, I might not be able to do this major event in a day or two of the couple of those home fixes, you know, and I'm back to gold. Um, this came on so suddenly, like I've never had a virus come on where I'm like, oh, I just finished an eight page paper and I'm going to meet my family for dinner. And oh my gosh, I'm so dizzy. Like, right. you know, like I wasn't run down. I, I, the onset is very peculiar to me. And then boom, fever and, and the body aches all of a sudden, like this very, very acute onset. Like, I, you know, I've been doing so much. My energy was great and every, you know, and then for my other family members not to get sick, not nothing, like not even the slightest cough, not a runny nose, not nothing. And not the people who were visiting you, who were sitting on your bed, in your bed with you, treating you every day, two or three times a day. We were very mindful of their family members as well. Like we were checking in, like it's anyone sick. No one else was sick and no one else got sick in the three weeks since this has happened and in these people who had contact with me. I will say I did get my labs back yesterday and I do have relatively low vitamin D. Like I'm not deficient. I'm at a 41 on a scale of one to a hundred. That's not deficient, but it's, but I'm hearing from doctors, like it's people who are under 55 of a vitamin D level that are getting this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in that, I could be in that group which is another mystery because I'm outside all the time. I live in a sunny state with lots of UV. Again, we were still having summer weather up until this point with lots of high temperatures and, and lots of UV and I'm out. I live in a rural home with, you know, I'm around chickens and horses and I'm watering my big garden. I'm walking my dog and I'm out with my son who does outdoor stuff. Um, like I'm not someone, I'm not a hermit that, or you know, the people who tend to have low vitamin D are living in a nursing home and they never go outside or people with, you know, melanin, uh, you know, pigment. And I, I'm a Caucasian person, so I don't have those risks. But what I keep hearing from a lot of people who, who are like me and are very outdoorsy, they're surprised. They're like, oh, I had low vitamin D. And mine was not like scary low or you think I would be at risk, but I just want to be transparent. Like, 
you you really want your vitamin D around 55. And just because you're an outdoorsy person doesn't mean that you're at 55. And vitamin D, when you use supplementation, takes a while for those receptors to um, recognize supplemented vitamin D. The best form is through the sun. And in supplementation, I think is a good idea, but it's going to take a while to build up because your body prefers the natural sunlight over the supplementation. And it's going to take a while for you to raise that level using supplementation. So that would be, you know, if this is a virus, okay, well, what was my risk factor? Relatively low or moderate, I would say vitamin D level. It needs to be a little higher for protective effects for this particular virus. Um, but, you know, then I look at, if, if I could talk about labs for a minute, because we, we, we still don't have like a good closure on why I was affected so severely. In my, in my labs, I have this high ferritin and I was aware of this being an indicator. So people who are being hospitalized for what we're calling COVID or this virus, have these very unusual high levels of ferritin and it's in the iron category. And we're talking like up to like 1500 on a scale that goes from, you know, zero to 150, right? That's very unusual for a virus. That is something maybe to me, in my opinion, you would see with like some type of radiation um, exposure, poisoning or pneumonia, not a viral pneumonia, not a bacterial pneumonia. That's a of radiation pneumonia. And my level was 384, which is so when you look at this, uh, I can add a link to this podcast of what we've, how we've measured people who, who die with this ferritin and people who, uh, in COVID and people who go home and are discharged and don't die. Um, we know that people, um, up to 700 on average of, nanograms per milliliter of ferritin, they, that's kind of the average number where those people get discharged to go back home. They survive. But above that, those people are dying. So I don't know why more people aren't talking about this as such an unusual um, lab value for a virus, allegedly, and that it actually, I mean, could predict whether you are going to leave that hospital or not. And I was at 384. Um, and again, I took these labs about five days after I was symptom free. So I don't even know if that was my peak like value. I know at one point I was 384 on, on a max range of 150, which is unusual. And um, so I'm in that survival range. So what does that tell you that, um, you know, I felt like there was a point I was going to die in the, you know, and by this ferritin value, um, I was in the survival group. Like that tells you like, we can't just dismiss that this is not a serious illness. We can't keep telling people, oh, it was no big deal for me. Well, maybe for you, but for some people that, and I'm not obese or elderly. So we have to kind of be flexible in our paradigms. And do you know if there are ways to bring ferritin, level down, ferritin levels down? Maybe not. One of the follow-up questions, like what should we be doing? So when I was talking to a long-term lifelong nurse friend last night, who actually had been hospitalized in April for what we're calling COVID pneumonia, 
and her, both her parents. So another weird onset, like what is the likelihood that this nurse my age and her parents who she looks after, she doesn't live with them, but she checks on them. They all got hospitalized at the same time, which I think for a virus, usually it staggers through a family. It doesn't hit everybody all on the same day. They literally went to the hospital all on the same day and they all came home on different days. The youngest came home first, the daughter, and then the dad came home like a week later. And then like three weeks later, the mom who has a lot of comorbid conditions came home, but they all had respiratory distress as well with this high ferritin. And that's how I was aware of the ferritin issue. When I looked at her labs back in April, I'm like, that is very unusual. It was one of the first things I looked for in my own labs. And she said to me, and I made a little note of it. She said, this, this virus or whatever it is, is not about the ability to take in oxygen. Like people aren't gasping for air. It's about the blood's ability to carry it to the organs. Right. That is what is hindered. And that's why you're having people with organ failure. It could be the lungs. It could be any organ. It's the, you know, and she, we talked extensively about hemoglobin and ferritin. And um, so, you know, again, another reason why putting people on ventilators is maybe not, again, not medical advice, but maybe not, shouldn't it be the first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first choice right? These people aren't struggling to bring in oxygen where you would need something with pressure to pump it through the body. The blood is having a hard time distributing it to the organs because of this, this ferritin problem. And so, <clears throat> you know, when she looked at, um, we talked about um, what she assessed that her and her family, that all three were hospitalized, she said it was more of like an altitude sickness or an acute radiation poisoning. And we, and we, we agree on it. Again, this is just my own opinion, just looking at all their labs and then looking at my own labs. And the other thing that is very curious to me are my white blood cells. My friend, her family, their white blood cells were very low, like lower than like cancer patients. And when you have an infection for a virus, you expect those white blood cells to be very high. They're, they're fighting a, an infection or a virus. My white blood cells weren't very low, but I also don't have the comorbid conditions that that other family had. Mine are just right there in the middle, like normal. Like they don't even know I have a virus. They're not responding to a virus or an infection. Like that was, they're, they're not flagged at all on my labs. And I went straight from ferritin down to my white blood cells. And I'm like, oh, wow, my white blood cells didn't even know I was sick. Um, Would it be typical for the white blood cell count to still be elevated a few days after your symptoms? Oh, yeah, because that will go really, really high. And um, it'll take time for them. To, and again, I, I say I was symptom-free. I was still struggling with exhaustion at day five. Like well, I struggled. Honestly, like sometimes I, I see you just kind of like, you're trying to catch your breath. Like, like things are still physically exhausting for you. Yeah. And I would say even mentally, like, um, I, it's not like a brain fog, but like, I cannot retrieve words and thoughts and ideas as fast as I normally do. So I'm not hundred percent and it, and it is, you can see it on my, uh, in my, the way I talk to people and in my movement, like I am still like, okay, take a breath. 
um, you know, like things are not moving as quickly and normally and smoothly as they normally do for me. Are you, so here begs the question, are you still taking niacin? Are you doing flushes? I will be. So I was kind of waiting on these labs, which I had to wait. I didn't get them till yesterday. I was trying to call and finally I just drove in and I was like, print these off for me. I got a podcast tomorrow. <laughs> I really wanted to like, no, yeah. I want to know about my vitamin D. And so there is a big surprise. I don't know if this is a good time to talk about this, but they're in again, cause I want to be transparent. Cause I'm sure there's some people that are like, something was wrong with her for her to get that sick. Right. And I want to know that too. And, but I wasn't feeling like anything was wrong with me before I got beat down with this. Um, so there is something very surprising in my labs. My liver values are terrible. Like I have like chronic liver disease and we, I'm just going to mention that because, um, I haven't talked to my doctor about this yet, but like severely elevated, like liver damage type of numbers. And so I'm just going to let you know what the questions I have are. The questions are, did I have this as like a chronic thing before I got sick? Uh, in my view, it's unlikely because I had no symptoms of liver problems and I have a baseline labs from 2019. That was the last time I took blood work that had no flags for liver disease. And it's highly unlikely in the last two years that I got to this level of like liver damage like, and didn't know I had a problem. Like, like I should be under the, based on these labs, I should be under the care of like a liver specialist, right? And I don't, I'm not taking anything um, cr chronically or routinely. I'm not on any type of pharmaceutical medications or anything. And so, and then I talked to the nurse friend last night about um, the first thing she said, cause we were both curious about ferritin and white blood cells. But the first thing she said to me when she saw them, she's like, oh my gosh, look at your liver. I'm like, I know. Right, we're both very, very, very shocked. And she said, "Pam, you don't drink, and you have your cholesterol is really good. There, this, the only people who have that type of liver value are people who have like meningitis or hepatitis. Like, like you would be under the care of a liver specialist if that was your normal. So we have a lot of questions about: um, Is this an acute onset that came with this sickness?" that you know, the body required so much of me that I have these really elevated liver values in your, um, in the comprehensive metabolic panel, I'm talking about your AST and your ALT. You might not know what those are, though those are liver inflammation, liver disease, liver damage type numbers. And you know, I'm at 182 out of a scale of zero to 30. You know, there's something's going on there. So we will have to retest and see try to discern if this was an acute onset with the liver, trying to handle whatever I had, or if I have some type of chronic version that I've just been living unaware for with for a couple of years, which is highly unlikely. Um, that, is, that is a question, we don't know. I just wanna say like, if you're looking for what was wrong with her, you know, maybe it was my liver, I don't know. And then the other thing I would say about my labs to kind of wrap up. So there are four emergency use tests for antibodies for COVID. And so first of all, I tested negative in um, the doctor's office with the rapid test and he didn't believe it. So he tested me again. I let him swab my mouth. It was kind of a compromise. He wanted to put up my nose. I told him I'd rather spit on it. And then we decided, okay, you can swab my mouth and then I'll rinse out my mouth. 
and they were both negative because we tested a second time. And then in my labs, it indicates that I was positive in the blood test, um, which is, but I want to kind of, for people who are familiar with antibody tests, a lot of us deal with this with our children, especially if you have a vaccine injured child, like I do, you know, you, you learn a lot about antibody testing. And so there's four different ones, four different antibody tests, and they're very unusual in that they do not give a range. So my experience with antibody tests are there's a range. You test for a specific strain of a virus and there's a low range that says, indicates that at some type in, in your, sometime in your life, maybe in your childhood or whenever, um, you were exposed to this virus. It's a very low level. It's not protective, but you were exposed at some point. It shows up in your blood. And then there's like a middle range where um, um, it indicates you were exposed and you probably have immunity by those numbers protective immunity. And then there's a range that's really high. That's like, wow, you have an active infection, right? Like the antibodies showed up. They recognized that they had seen it before. They recognized it and they rallied and you have an active infection. So in, in these antibody tests that are under emergency use authorization and they notate that there's no range given. One of them for the spike antibody test just says positive. That's it, no range given. And then in the IgG and IgM, it, it says positive and negative, which tells you nothing. And then when you look in the description underneath, it says results suggest recent or prior infection with SARS-CoV-2, which really tells me nothing without the range and the values. And then the one that really is kind of curious to me is the fourth one, which is called a semi-quant total antibody. And it gives me a number. I was like, oh yeah, a number. I can do something with that. And it says I'm a seven. Well, there's no upper range, right? So it says if you're less than 0 0.8, you would be negative. So seven you, is implied as positive. Well, I've been talking to some friends who have taken this test and they, they've tested up to 1,500 on the same test. Wow. Right. So those are the people you would say, oh, you have an active infection, 1,500, and say the antibodies showed up, they had seen it before, and they did their job. And I'm a seven. Like, that would say, eh, you were probably exposed to coronavirus at some point in your life. It's so low level, it's probably not protective. But, so, I don't know, I, I maybe I can get the ranges. These are from LabCorp, from my doctor. Like, can we, can we get some, like, science going here? Like, instead of just yes, or no, like, can we look at some real numbers and make it what we would normally do for type of antibody testing? So we don't know. The, the, the original question where I just rambled on and on was about like, do you think this was a virus or a toxin or, or you know, mystery? Um, this was not like any virus that I had ever been exposed to and the labs don't um, leave a lot of questions. So. I'm, I'm open is what I'm saying. All right. I think we covered everything. Um, was there anything that you think we missed? I, I want to, I think you touched on like being prepared and having a plan. Yeah. Um, I would say like, and again, another shout out to Randy, like this is a time where you need to really think about a medical directive and maybe even a will um, just to be like, just blunt. Um, so for me, like my spouse is not as 
holistic as I am, he tends to be a little bit more mainstream. And we disagreed through this whole process, like a lot. <laughs> like, and he maybe is not so different from a lot of our spouses. You know, um, he, I mean, I, he wanted to take me to the ER several times. And I'm like, no, there, there's not, for a lot of reasons, I wanted to avoid the ER, not just the cost that I mentioned earlier, but um, trust and care. You know, I hear a lot of stories of people losing their autonomy in a hospital setting where, um, you know, that I'm not willing to give up. And, you know, a medical directive, you, you tell others in your spouse what you are not willing to receive. And at one point I remember verbally telling my friends, like, these are all the things I'm not willing to do. I am not, um, you know, like, here's all your choices, right? Like right now they're giving a lot of remdesivir and monoclonal antibodies and um, ventilators and um, just in the vaccine itself um, to sick people, whether, you know, you implicitly consented or not. Um, there's a long list of things that I was like, I'm not willing to do any of these things <laughs> that they will likely offer me in a hospital setting. And with that, I just, again, this is not medical advice, but you need to decide for yourself, like, um, when do I go to a hospital? And, you know, I totally would advocate for if this is, you know, they teach you, you know, when I was an EMT, they, they teach you airways, breathing, circulation, like those are life-threatening things. Like if, you have a problem in those areas, absolutely seek medical care. Those are life threatening. But from what I knew of what was going on in our state, in our medical system, as long as I was maintaining my oxygen and um, you know, wasn't in respiratory distress, wasn't in cardiac risk, um, there's nothing they can, I don't wanna say there's nothing, but there's not as many things as they can do for me in a hospital setting that I could do for myself at home with the help of the home IVs which I knew they weren't going to let me have right. in a hospital setting. So, and they're, and they're also not going to let you have your medical directive choices. At this point, they've decided, no, we're, you know, we do remdesivir, we do ventilators, we do, um, you know, the antibodies and, and they don't give you the choice. So you can go in with your medical directive, you know, it's like having your do not resuscitate orders, but they're not going to pay attention to it. They're going to do whatever they want to do. And so I think staying out of the hospital, I mean, and we've said this since January of 2020, stay out of the hospital if you at all can. And, and the issue with the not being respiratory, you know, people not gasping for air came up. I mean, when New York was going crazy in early 2020 and people were dying left and right on ventilators, I mean, there was a, a couple of, of ER docs that were saying, this is not respiratory. I'm, I'm not doing this to my patients. And of course they got blacklisted and fired or, or you know, moved, but they knew that. They knew that it wasn't respiratory, but the hospital had their protocol they, that they want to do. And, and it's the same today where you don't get those choices. So having all these tools put together and these friends that can do literally everything to keep you out of the hospital. I think at this point in our society is imperative. Well, in having a good trusted relationship with a doctor, I had a double whammy here that my trusted doctor who 
you know, he's older, you know, so I didn't want to put him at risk, but I definitely would have had a phone call with him or, or maybe seen him in the parking lot of his, you know, office. He was sick at the same time. You know, I, I was like, ah, so um, we ended up with a little local doctor here who has, he's not my primary, but I would definitely put him as my secondary because we align on a lot of, um, this whole issue and he's willing to do some blood work. Um, but again, he was older too. And I'm, and there's so much value and experience in having an older doctor who's like 65 because they, they are, oh yeah, I had that. I had a patient like this, like 30 years ago where you don't get with a younger doctor, but at the same time, you don't want to put them at risk. You know, and like my own mom, my mom normally would come and fly in if we needed her in an emergency situation. Not, we haven't used her for a sickness before, but um, like for childcare to help out, I didn't want to expose my mom. And I had to tell my mom, no, you can't come, you know, mm-hmm. like, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so some of my normal go-tos for help in normal situation were not available to me. Um, and then I'm talking about my priorities with the spouse who doesn't have the same worldview as me as far as regard to hospitals and medicine. And so you, you really need to, um, kind of think and talk these things through before you get sick. And if we have time, I know we're going so long. I'm sorry. I'm just like rambling here. We tried to have like some of the most common questions people have been asking, but I do want to mention that my experience with telehealth, because I want people to have it. I so want people to have telehealth as an option. So telehealth, you call a urgent care, (coughs) excuse me, and, and they can, you know, prescribe things to you over the phone. And And historically, you know, we use it more now with COVID, but historically, you know, during cold and flu season, it is a very common ask to ask, call in for a prescription for for an anti-nausea drug um, when you have severe nausea during cold and flu season. It's not a big ask and it's very common and and they're relatively safe in short doses, short-term, right? And the whole point of this is to keep sick people out of, the hospital. And anyways, my point being that um, we did call telehealth and we did not have a good experience. They were, as soon as I said, my spouse called at like day nine. And as soon as he told them that we were um, unvaccinated, she threw her hands up in the air and she said, well, you need to come in the ER. There's nothing I can do for you. You will get different treatment if you, um, tell people that you are unvaccinated and I'll just leave it at that, um, that the the provider might withhold treatment or provide you a different option that uh, uh, maybe a more costly option or a more invasive option if you're unvaccinated because they feel like, you know, you need to pay or an offer more effective things, more accessible things, less expensive things to people who are vaccinated because they want to reward uh, the, the behavior of getting vaccinated. Um, I'm sure there's so, you know, this is one data point. I'm sure there's some good telehealth PAs, docs, and nurses out there, but um, if just be aware if that's your backup option to get to care that how you will answer that question of, of vaccination for you or a family member. Um, I don't know if it's relevant when you're talking about symptoms and sickness and which was for something that may or may not even be COVID and maybe that's your answer. Um, 
all that to say, I'll wrap this up with, since we went so long, I think we answered most of the questions that people have been asking. Um, there, of course, there's other treatments and supplements out there. People are using um, iodine in part of their protocols as well. Um, uh, but uh, this wraps it up for this episode of Colorado Health Choice Alliance Serious Shot podcast.